Romans chapter 13, as we continue in our study in the book of Romans, this sanctification and service of the saint, and we are picking it up in verse 8, where we left off in context, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another is, has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time, the hours come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So, you, so then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to satisfy its desires. If you were with us last week, We started Romans 13 and we talked about the government, the government's responsibilities to us, our responsibilities to the government. And we concluded the message, if you'll recall, those of you who are with us, it doesn't matter if you weren't, just give you a little continuity here, by referring to the detractors that came to Jesus one day and they said, well, you know, is it lawful to, should we be paying taxes to Caesar? And if you'll recall, Jesus said, well, you know, Show me a coin. They got out a denarius, and he said, whose image is on that? And of course, the answer was Caesar's image. And then Jesus came up with that classic response. He said, well, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. And the great Christian apologist, Ravi Zacharias, postulated that if that scripture had extended even more, the next question from the detractor to Jesus would have been, well, what do I pay to God? And if that had happened, Jesus would have responded, whose image is on you? We're still talking about that right now. The image of Jesus in us, on us, coming through us. As everyone, everyone in this room, every one of you were created in the image of God. The Bible makes that Abundantly clear. Christians, on the other hand, Christians are the only ones who are not only created in the image of God, but are being conformed into a more distinct aspect of that very image of God. Christians, followers of Jesus, are the true image bearers of God. And the scripture affirms this. Paul said in 2 Corinthians, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And 
in our study of Romans, we came to the end of Romans 8, where the Apostle Paul said, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So the passage before us declares a certain indebtedness, hence the title of the message, Biblical Indebtedness. A certain indebtedness that we have to Jesus' image, as well as to put off the things in our lives that distort that very image, intended to be continuously conformed in us. We are indebted to love and to live like Jesus. Now, I realize that some of you have no power, no capacity to do that. We'll get to you because it's available for you. But two simple points that come out of this passage of Scripture and think about being indebted this morning. The first is this. We are indebted to love like Jesus. And we do that by showing off the love that projects his image. And I see that in verses 8 through 10. Look at verse 8 again. Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, because God is love, 1 John 4, 8, right? That's his character. That's his, he is the very personification of love. God is love. Those of us who are being transformed into his image are indebted to God to project that love to a very unloved and in many cases very unloving world. That's the reason why John says later on in 1 John, as he is, so we are in this world. We're supposed to be like him. Now, the force of the, of the original language here in verse 8 is so powerful that a few interpreters have gone so far to conclude that there's an admonition here to never have any debt of any kind whatsoever. In fact, Kenneth Weiss, the great Greek scholar from Moody Bible Institute many years ago, translated this verse like this. Stop owing even one person, even one thing except to be loving to one another. For the one who is loving another has fulfilled the law. And yet even Kenneth Wiest, in his commentary on this, acknowledged it's not talking about finances, much as it may sound like that. In fact, what Paul is talking about is the perpetual debt of love we always, quote, owe others. And, but he is talking about debt. Look at, owe no one anything. The Greek word owe means to be indebted. So he is talking about debt here. Uh, By the way, back in the first century, when a significant Roman nobleman died, he left enormous debts that he had successfully concealed throughout his lifetime. When the estate came up for sale, for auction rather, the emperor, Caesar Augustus, instructed his agent to buy the man's pillow. His agent asked him, why why do you want me to buy the pillow? And here's what Caesar Augustus said. That pillow must be particularly conducive to sleep if its owner, in spite of all his debts, could sleep on it. Now, Now, Paul is talking about debt, but not of a financial variety. 
However, financial debt, as some of you can relate to, maybe even now, it does illustrate the weight, the stress, the pressure that comes upon somebody who's upside down financially, right? In debt. The theme, the teaching, the reality of debt is taught throughout the Bible. The entire sacrificial system in the Old Testament is predicated on debt. Debt we owe to God because of our sin. And because sin becomes, because it's, because sin is likened to a debt, and we personally are incapable of erasing sin from our lives, God, if you'll recall, in the Old Testament, prescribed a substitutionary sacrifice, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, right? And when Jesus died, he concluded all sacrifices, right? He said, die when he died. Remember that? It is finished. It's paid in full. The debt is paid. Cry of victory, so to speak. And while our sins are totally forgiven, the debt has been totally paid in Christ, there is a daily need for daily cleansing. Do you agree with that? There is a need for us to ask and receive personal forgiveness from God and from others. We ask forgiveness from God to stay close to him. This is why John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. This is why Jesus when he taught us how to pray, he taught us in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 12, forgive us our debts. Isn't that an interesting way of putting it? As we forgive our what? Our debtors. Now, of course, it was Matthew who wrote that who happened to be a, a tax collector. Matthew understood that sin was like a debt. So, in other words, sin is like a debt. And so... First to God, and then to others. If I sin against someone, listen carefully to what I'm saying here. I owe them a debt. They are carrying a weight, if you please, of my sin against them. That's why I need to seek forgiveness from my brother. If I don't, if I don't seek forgiveness, I stand the risk of my brother becoming hardened and stubborn. Actually, I stand the risk of, of, if I've sinned against him, and if I don't ask for forgiveness, I actually stand the risk of becoming hardened and stubborn. And I stand the risk of making him bitter. In some ways, this is the only part of the sermon some of you are going to need to hear. But I am rounding the corner to making a point absolutely vital to your walk with God. So hang in there with me. Recently, the Lord revealed to my own heart the need to confess a sin to a brother in Christ. It was not an easy thing to do. In fact, I labored a long time over it, how I would approach it. How, and then I just realized God was leading me to just completely humble myself and confess my sin to him. I did it. I asked for forgiveness, and he forgave me. We were wonderfully reconciled. Now, here's the point you must not miss. Once I had sought and received forgiveness, it was over. My debt was paid. 
I no longer owed that person anything. The burden of the debt was gone. And what's, what's more, when I walked away from this individual, I felt my heart was light. I was just walking on, on cloud nine. I was so free. But here is the point that Paul is making. Loving others is definitely not like confessing sin. We never pay off the debt of love. Over no act of love can we ever proclaim tetelestai. It is finished. It's paid in full. I must never think, well, I showed him love last week. Why do I need to love him now? I would never say to my wife, you know, wasn't that bouquet of flowers for your birthday good enough? I mean, I showed my love to you, didn't I? You would never do that. My love for my wife yesterday is due today, it's due tomorrow, it's due the next day, and on. And there's no qualifier in this. Oh, no man, anything. There's no qualifier. Our love is perpetual. We are indebted to love like Jesus and thus put his love in a projection out there so others can see it, be drawn to him. And this has to be our attitude. And he says in verse 9, it's summed up, this sums up the whole law. For the commandments, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't covet. Any other commandment are summed up in this word. Love your neighbor as yourself. That fulfills it. All of the negative commandments, by the way, that are listed here, that's the bottom half of the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments, are patently unloving acts. You notice that way, murder, that's a no-brainer. That's not loving, of course. But the rest of them are unloving as well. Stealing, coveting, committing adultery. These things are unloving because they all have self in mind. When I live immorally, I am loving myself. I'm not loving that person, even though I might think that I am. I'm certainly not projecting the love of Jesus, the sacrificial love that puts myself aside and puts others before me, right? I talked to a guy recently. I was chasing him down. This is a guy who came to Christ some time ago. It was a long time ago, actually. And I, I kind of lost track of him. He fell off the radar. I finally found him. He was living in another state. I had a conversation with him. I said, hey, how's it going? Oh, it's going good. I said, how's your walk with God? Eh, not so good. I said, well, tell me, are you, reading your, are you reading God's word? Are you going to church? No, I'm not doing that. I said, why is that? I mean, are you, I mean, doesn't this mean, well, yeah, it does, but I just, just haven't been feeling it lately. I said, well, why? And he paused. He goes, well, I kind of moved in with another woman. I said, oh, okay. How's that going for you? Pretty good, actually. Okay, I, that didn't work. <laughs> I said, now, uh, how, does that, how, does that, uh, how does that match up with your, with your claim to know and love Jesus? Oh, he says, ah, uh, that's not real good. Not real good, he said. Listen, if my claim to know Jesus Christ doesn't match on some level my life, then it's a lie. My life is a lie. I'm not being loving. I'm not fulfilling the law of love here. 
Look, when Jesus, when that woman got caught in adultery, remember that story? Thrown before Jesus, remember that? Jesus said, I, they all left. You know the story, many of you do. They, all the detractors left, and it's just Jesus and the woman he said, where are those who condemn you? They're gone. I'm not condemning you either. That's a wonderful statement, isn't it? I don't condemn you either. I mean, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. And Jesus is saying, I don't condemn you. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Say yes. But he did say to her, now stop sinning. Go and sin no more. He did say that, didn't he? Why? Why did he say that? Because followers of God must begin to love and look like him. That's transforming love. How does this fulfill the law? Specifically, loving your neighbor. If we are passionate about God, if we are passionate about his person, if we are passionate about God's glory and his name and care for those around us that way, their honor, their safety, their purity, their property, then we are fulfilling the law of love. And by the way, when Jonathan Edwards, who was the most well-known preacher, pastor, evangelist of the Great Awakening in the middle 1700s, Jonathan Edwards was seeing, he preached that great sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. People on the eastern seaboard, by the thousands, were coming to Christ. They couldn't keep track of them. It became so amazing that some people, it was kind of got onto the bandwagon because it was really kind of cool. You know, I mean, people were getting saved. Being, becoming Christian was kind of a neat thing. So everybody was jumping in there. And so that caused Jonathan Edwards to question who were the real deals and who were the fakes. And Jonathan Edwards, trying to determine the reality of the many professions of faith that were taking place during the Great Awakening, put love at the top of the list for determining someone's faith, whether it was genuine. In fact, he said this. He believed that, quote, that evidences of love or their absence were the best test of whether or not someone really gave their heart to Christ, unquote. So how is that looking in your life? We are indebted to love like Jesus by showing off that love as a projection of his image in our lives. We're also indebted to look like Jesus by putting on the life that reflects his image. That's the second thing. We're indebted to look like Jesus by putting on the life that reflects his image. I see that in verses 11 through 14. Look at verse 11. He says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come that you wake from sleep. And you thought the Bible had no word for a teenager. Here, Paul takes the well-known biblical metaphors of darkness and light and sleeping and wakefulness that illustrates the Christ-honoring people of God versus those who do not honor him with their lives and their lifestyles. He puts them before us. Look what he says in verse Middle of verse 11, for salvation is nearer now than when you first believed. The night's far gone, the day's at hand. Let's cast off the works of darkness, put on the armor of light. 
He's using these metaphors for one who truly follows God. They're not sleeping. They're awake. They're not in darkness. They're in the light. If I pop into your house at 11 o'clock in the morning and you still have your pajamas on, what am I going to think? I'm going to think you are a lazy you-know-what. That's what you are. You're a sloth. Get out of bed. Get out of your PJs. Get up for God. Go to work. Right? Somebody say right. You say, no kidding. Those kind of people really upset me. Really? Because this passage of Scripture is only using that as an illustration. The reality is that Paul has spiritual laziness in mind. If you're not starting your day with God, if you're not worshiping God, if you're not walking with the thought that Jesus is with you wherever you go, if you're not looking at your fellow men that you bump into as those who created in the image of God, even though they're not being conformed to that image yet, they need Jesus. If you're not resisting temptation in your life, and everything in your whole life is about you, your desires, your wants, your needs, where you're going, what you're doing, you, 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 you are lazy. That's what he's saying. He's saying, get out of your PJs and walk in the light. That's what he's saying here. Soon after I came to Christ, the guy who originally mentored me had a, to me, he coined the phrase, he didn't, but, he, but it's where I first heard it. Whenever there would be a discussion on something that had no ramification for eternity, he would, say, he would say exactly that. He would say, you know, in light of eternity, who really cares? And that was like tattooed on my mind and on my heart. In light of eternity, who really cares? I think that's what Paul, that's the spirit that Paul is trying to convey here. Stop dribbling over things that don't extend into glory. And stop with the things that are distorting the very image of Jesus whose love we are to be projecting and reflecting, right? Friend, if you get to a point in your knowledge of God to where you are comfortable with, your, with the demarcation between your claim and your lifestyle that's contrary to your claim... You are living a lie. That's exactly what Paul said to Titus. Though, though they profess to know God in works, they deny him. Have you ever read that? That's a contrast between the claim and the reality. You know, that's why when Jason Gerwell, our, our fourth church planner, came to me a few months ago, he said, we got so many people coming out of the woodwork. They're coming from churches, and they're, they're, but also they're coming from non-church life. There's, a, there's over 120, 140, 160. Now there's 180 coming. It's only two months old. He goes, what do you think I should preach here? I said, go to 1 John. 1 John is, it's the black and white epistle. He makes, John isn't like Paul getting all, into all this heavy theological term now John just boom lays it on the line and so he did I mean this this is what John says whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil that's black and white is it not for the devil's been sinning from the beginning the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil no one born of God makes a practice of sinning clear enough 
For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. This is what happens when a person has truly been transformed by the love of God. Your life is changed. And the reason that hasn't happened in some of your lives is because you've been living a behavior modification style of Christianity. That's, no Christi- that's not Christianity at all. You might look at, dress it, you know, punch, all, punch your card right and all this kind of thing, but you're still not going to heaven. Paul's call here in this passage of Scripture is to simple, from the heart, obedience to God. Any obedience that does not come from a heart of love is corrupted obedience. Now, there is a passage of Scripture in Romans chapter 6 that is so powerful. I would urge every one of you to memorize this. Because it's in Romans 6 and because it's surrounded by so many other important verses of Scripture, we just sort of run right over the top of it. But there is a prepositional phrase in this passage that you could literally lift out of the verse, and the verse would make perfect sense. In fact, it's exactly how some of you have lived. But the prepositional phrase in the passage is what makes the verse come alive. Are you interested in seeing it? Here's what it is. Look at it. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Now look at it again and just lift the prepositional phrase out. You can do it. It would make sense. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. That's exactly where some of you are at. If you lift from the heart out, that's behavior modification. That's me doing the right things because I was told to do the right thing. It's me not doing the wrong things because I was told not to do the wrong things. Why do you do the right things? Well, because my parents told me. Why do you not do the wrong things? Because my parents told me. Because my church told me. Because God told me. The Bible tells me. But it's not really coming from your heart. And this is why you continue to be enslaved and you continue to go back to these life-dominating sins that are actually listed in this passage and you wonder why you're a slave to them all. Because you haven't been set free. That's why. And you need to be. It has to come from your heart. And I fear that much of Christianity, and for some of you, it's been nothing more than behavior modification. What is it that's supposed to control me anyway? What's supposed to control me? My mom and dad? My church? My pastor? The people around me that keep me accountable? I got a better controller. How about the one that Paul talked about? The love of Christ controls me. What's controlling you? What's controlling you? What's controlling me? If it's coming from the heart, it's the love of Jesus. How simple is that? That's why a guy like Augustine, who I'll refer to here in a moment, could say, love God and do whatever you want. That just sounds too startling, doesn't it? What? No, 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 no. He understood what loving God was all about. It would put parameters around you. It would keep you from doing what you shouldn't do, and it would promote to doing what you ought to do because it comes from your heart. 
Gospel-centered living, gospel-centered obedience, gospel-centered families teach biblical principles, listen to this, to the hearts of their children so that the obedience might come from the same place. And so Paul is telling us here that we ought to love, love and look like Jesus. And we do when our obedience is coming from our hearts. And he has an encouragement for those of you. I'm so, bad. I'm so sorry this is such a snowy, frosty day that it kept a lot of our widows and widowers out. Some of them are here and I'm thankful for that. Because look at verse 11, second half of verse 11. For your salvation is nearer to us, nearer to us now than when we first believed. Don't you love that? It's nearer now than when you first believed. You know, salvation has three tenses to it. I was saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. Did you know that? The Bible teaches that. When you placed your faith in Jesus, you were saved once and for all. Nothing can take that away. But in the process of sanctification, you are being saved. God assures it. The Spirit of God is in you. It doesn't mean you're not going to fail and, and, and flub up and, and screw up and everything else. But you're, you're in the process of being saved from that power of sin. But there's coming a day where there's glory and there's heaven and we will be saved from the very presence of sin. Hallelujah. Amen. And that's what he's talking about here. Your salvation is nearer now than when you first believed. Can I get a hallelujah? And when I, I say to you widows, and I say to you widowers that are elderly, and it's a struggle for you just to get out of bed, much less to make a meal or get dressed or do whatever, your salvation is nearer today than it was yesterday. Be encouraged by that. And to those of you who are crippled, or you're blind, or you're deaf, or you're an invalid or a partial invalid, your salvation is nearer now than when you first believed. And those of you who, like my friend Kevin Thomas, have suffered with a stroke, and all of the ramifications of that, and some of you that suffer with chronic pain, you can't figure it out. You've been to all the doctors and the pain is still there and you suffer every day. And those of you that are dealing with cancer and you're taking chemo and your hair is falling out and you feel miserable because you're throwing up all the time, your salvation is nearer than it was yesterday. And when you first believed. And so this is why he says, let that be a motivation for you to love and to look like Jesus. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Let's cast off the works of darkness, he says in verse 12. Put on the armor of light. Walk properly in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. You know, it's a well-known fact of history that one of our earliest church fathers and subsequent theologian, loved by virtually every stripe of Christianity to the present hour, his name was Augustine. In the fourth century, Augustine was 
everything verse 13 says. He was sensual. He was immoral. He was a drunkard. He was, a, he's, he was jealous. He was a quarreler. And one day when Augustine, this unsaved young man, was sitting in a patio contemplating his worthless life, he heard a child on the other side of a hedge saying, take it up and read, take it up and read. And he looked over and there was a scroll of the book of Romans. He opened it up and there was in that, staring him in the face, Romans chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. And as he read verse 13, he saw himself in the verse. He saw himself there. This is me. I'm a drunkard. I'm a sensual man. I'm an immoral man. I'm a quarreler and I'm jealous. But then he read verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no more provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And he saw there, like you could see this morning, his salvation. That if he would put on Jesus from his heart, his life would be changed. When Augustine did that, his life was radically changed. And he became not just an image, created an image of God, but began to be conformed into the image of Jesus. So the question we started with, the one we ended with last week, we end with again. Whose image is on you? Has this image been superimposed upon you by somebody, by a parent or by a church? Or is it the image of God within you? Because from your heart, you placed your faith in Jesus and you put him on for salvation. Some of you have lived this behavior modification style of Christianity and you're going to die in your sins if you don't repent of them from the heart and place your faith in Jesus. This is why the book of Romans tells us if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe where? From your heart. That God raised him from the dead. That's when you're saved. It's with the heart that a man believes unto righteousness. With the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. And some of you this morning, I don't care how churchy you are, are unchurchy. You need to be saved. You need to recognize That behavior modification doesn't get anybody into heaven. It just sets you up for hell. Your heart needs to be changed. And only God can do that. But he's more than willing to. That's the good news. He's more than willing to. Jesus once said, the one who comes to me, I will in no way cast out. Which was a very nice thing for him to say. So if you mean it, and it's from your heart, and your heart is saying right now, that's me. I've I've lived the superimposed Christianity. It's not real. His image isn't real. It's not coming out of me. It's been superimposed upon me. I want it. Then it's very simple. It comes from your heart. You place your faith in Jesus, who died for you and rose again. You become a genuine child of God. And if you're a follower of God, you really are a Christian. You really have been saved. 
The same truth is still for you. God has called you to a biblical indebtedness to both love like Jesus and look like him. We call it the process of sanctification as you commit yourself to putting off and casting off those works that distort the image of Jesus and put him on by daily beholding and loving and living for him. Will you pray with me? Our Father, with great gratitude, we thank you that we can look into your word and see this indebtedness that we have. Let us, Lord, as John Newton wrote, love and sing in wonder because our very hearts have been changed. And I pray for those in this room whose hearts have not been changed. Lord, you love them. You don't have to prove your love for them anymore. You've already done that. Would you draw them near to you? And if that's you, dear friend, and you're sitting here going, oh my goodness, this has just struck me to the heart. It's, my heart was never in it. I knew, I, I've, been, I've been living this superimposed Christianity. I don't want it anymore. I want to repent of my sin. and I want to know Jesus. Hey, just tell God that. He hears you. You can tell him right now. Tell him you're sorry for your sin. Tell him you're sorry for faking it all this time. Whatever. He sees you. And humble yourself, believing in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus as your only means of putting on Jesus for salvation. And Christian, how does that image look right now? That's all I'm going to ask you. How's it looking? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.